Some of us remember Louis Armstrong. <laughs> I'm reading today from Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. You're very familiar with this as I, as I continue the series on the life of Moses. Starting with verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Ha'iroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite of Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Ha'iroth, opposite of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it uh, because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to get a move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud that brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. 
The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Israel was now free, or so they thought. But Pharaoh had a change of heart, as he was wont to. Pharaoh said to his council, what have we done? We have let Israel go and lost our free labor. So he came after them with his best chariots, cavalry, and troops. Then God gives some militarily absurd strategy. By the way, if you study the Old Testament, God is a lousy military strategist. He tells Moses, I want Israel to camp near Pi-Hahiroth, right up against the Red Sea. In fact, they, it says in the Bible they had to go backwards to get there. God was telling Israel to go where they could be easily seen by the Egyptians. Camp where Egypt is on the west, he said, where nothing but desert is on the south, where the north is loaded with formidable Egyptian fortresses, and the Red Sea is to the east. God seemed to be entrapping his own people. Egypt must have thought their gods were answering their prayers. But our God's imagination goes far beyond ours. He didn't see Pi-Hahiroth as a trap or as a box. He saw it as a door. God knew Israel needed something he was going to give them that day. He knew they needed a Red Sea experience. They needed to see life from a new perspective. They needed their worldview changed about just who was in charge and who wasn't. In the distance, Israel began to hear what they thought was thunder. And they saw the dust rising as Egypt's massive army and chariots came over the horizon. And Israel did what you'd expect. They peed all over themselves. And then they did what they should have done. They cried out in mass to the Lord. You know, nothing helps your prayer life more than imminent death and destruction I have found. Why did God send Israel to, to in the first service I said to pee her heart, to pie her heart, to that word. <laughs> I think God wanted Israel to be put in a place where the only way to survive was to depend on God and God alone. He wanted them to see that He was their deliverance and nothing else or no one else. He wanted Israel to come to the end of their resources so that they might receive His. You see, it was at Pi-Hahiroth where we find out where what we really believe. It's at Pi-Hahiroth that we learn who or what we really trust. It's often at Pi-Hahiroth that we face who we are. It is there God breaks us out of old thought patterns. It is there He shakes us free of destructive habits. It is there God helps break the chains that have held us captive for years. It is so easy after living in slavery to the Egyptians to start thinking like Egyptians to start taking the perspective of the Egyptians, st to start valuing what the Egyptians value. God, in order to set us free, not just then but now, He must not only get us out of Egypt, He must get Egypt out of us. And getting boxed in with no escape except God Himself is often a great way to change. Before Israel can go to Canaan, 
they first have to go to Pi-Hahiroth because we need to be detoxed from Egypt. So many things keep us in Egypt, chained to Egypt, and most of them are internal, not external. You see, getting us to the Red Sea is just as much a part of God's plan as crossing the Red Sea. It is at Pi-Hahiroth that I learn about myself in ways I would have never learned otherwise. I can say I don't trust in money as long as I got money. But then if I lose most of my money, guess what? Apparently I did trust in money a lot. I can say I'm content like Paul said he was content in good times and bad until things start really going bad. And then I find out I wasn't nearly as content as I thought I was. I was just happy things were going my way. I can say I trust in God until they say I need surgery next week and chemo for the next six months. Then I see where my level of trust really is. Often we don't face ourselves and change what needs to be changing until we are caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, or in this case, a red one. Pressure, stress, peril, out-of-control circumstances, pain, disease, Egyptian armies help open our eyes and reveal our blind spots better than anything else. And we all have blind spots, have you noticed? Often everybody sees our blind spots but us. And often they talk about our blind spots with everyone but us. I know of a pastor who used to go to a restaurant every week for breakfast with a friend. And every week his friend, who loved waffles, asked the same server if they had waffles. And she would always go, no. And he would always whine a little bit and say, you know, well, you know, you ought to have waffles and stuff like that. This went on for years. The man had no idea how irritating he was. It was a blind spot. And finally, one day, the waitress melted down. And she said, listen, waffle boy, we don't have waffles. We don't make waffles. We don't serve waffles. They're not on the menu. We didn't have waffles last week. We don't have them this week, and we won't have them next week. Hello? It's the clueless telephone company calling. It's for you, Waffle Boy. She did not receive a large tip that day. When it comes down to what really motivates me or who or what I really trust, the truth about me is that I am very blind often to the most important truths about me. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and who can know it? The truth is, only God knows the truth about me. And He will not leave me in my ignorance. He insists at a pace I can take that I know what's in my own heart. That I know the truth so that the truth can set me free. But first, the truth, what I find, it comes delivered in a box of pain. It hurts. In fact, sometimes the truth is meant to kill certain things in me. But in the hand of Jesus, what is killed will be resurrected and redeemed into something new and good and will bring real life instead of more death. Sometimes you have to go to pie, hear heart, that place. <laughs> man, oh man. <laughs> Pi Hirharath revealed the hearts of Israel. And by the way, just like our hearts, their hearts were very mixed, don't you think? Because after crying out to God, they turned on Moses. 
Imagine that. People turning on the preacher. Blaming him that things weren't going well. Fortunately, that's the first and last time that has ever happened. By the way, this is called sarcasm. And then what they, is, the Hebrews said to Moses was clever. They said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? By the way, that is called sarcasm too. And then they start reconstructing history. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, leave us here, let us serve these wonderful Egyptians? What was wrong with Egypt? What made you think we didn't like serving our wonderful Egyptian masters? That is called Reconstructionist history. If you ever want to hear Reconstructionist history, talk to a golfer about their last round. I played golf this week with Scott Harrison at West Shore. I shot a 67. I'm not saying what hole I reached 67 on, but I shot it and shot on past it. But, I, but who needs to know that? And in the middle of all this panic and chaos, God gives Moses a word. A word Moses shares with Israel. A word God has given his people over and over again through the centuries, especially through his son. What's the word? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But, 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 but don't you see the greatest army on earth coming for us and there's no place to run and no place to hide? Don't you see who's running for president? Don't you know about ISIS? Don't you see the shrinking American middle class? Didn't you hear that health insurance rates are going to go up 45% in 2017? And they are. It doesn't make me afraid. <laughs> and I'm the pastor of a church where there are young black men, and sometimes I'm afraid for them. And do you see where the economy's going? Did you see Ben Roethlisberger is out for six weeks? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What planet do you live on? Let me tell you this morning a secret about fear. When God says, do not fear, don't fear that approaching Egyptian army, he doesn't mean learn to not feel what you feel. Fear is an emotion, and often it is uncontrollable, often you cannot eradicate it. It doesn't. Just to tell somebody, don't, have you ever told a tense person to relax? How well does that work? I have a fear of heights. If I go to the top of the Empire State Building, you might, you're wasting your breath if you say, just relax, don't be afraid. I am going to be afraid and I'm going to be tense. But here's the part, here's the point. Fear although the emotion may be uncontrollable, doesn't have to be my master. It doesn't have to be my boss. I don't have to have my thinking controlled by fear or my decisions controlled by fear. And by the way, did you know that you can trust God and be afraid at the same time? And often, when you are invited to go into the Red Sea, you will trust God and be scared spitless at the same time. 
Boy, I'm glad I didn't mess that up. <laughs> Don't let fear make the important decisions of your life. Don't let fear determine whether you obey God or not. Don't let fear have the final word. When God says fear not, he just says, he's saying, don't let it control you. Give it to God. Let it be the stuff of prayer. What does the Bible say? Don't be anxious for anything, but pray. Let it drive you into his arms, not drive you away from him. And then comes the second word. He says, stand firm. Stand firm and watch. Watch what I'm going to do. Quit running around like chickens with your heads cut off. Settle down. Pay attention. Watch. You know, I have uh, read some of Henry Blackaby's books, and you know he, he's probably written four or five or six, and they all say the same thing. And what they say is simply this. Find out where God is moving and join him. That includes your own heart. That includes churches. That includes movements. Find out where God is moving and join Him. But in order to do that, you first have to be a God watcher. Now, you go, well, what, what, what does that mean? I'm going to use an illustration. And honey, I promise I won't embarrass you. But my wife is not only a psychologist, she's an ornithologist. You know what an ornithologist is? An ornithologist is a fancy word for a bird watcher. That's an awful fancy name to go, look, there's a bird. That's awfully fancy. But my wife, sometimes we'll sit on the back porch and it's amazing. My, that some bird will start chirping and my wife will go, that's a, that's a cardinal. That's a robin. That's, that's, a, that's a wren. And she goes, you know, there's one of their nests. That's where Robin's nest. That's where Wren's nest. She, she, it's amazing. She knows their sounds. She knows their movements. She knows their songs. She knows what they look like. She knows their names. She is a great bird watcher. You know, every now and then she'll go, oh, look, look, it's a titmouse. And I go, that sounds gross. What is that? Sounds like a deformed rodent. Anyway, the, the point is, is we're called to be God watchers. We're supposed to know our God's voice. We're supposed to know His sound. We're supposed to know how He moves. We're supposed to know the patterns of how He lives His life. And we're supposed to know especially that in our own hearts. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. He didn't say, just seminary professors know my voice. He didn't say, just clergy knows my voice. He didn't say, some monk on top of a mountain knows my voice. He said, my sheep, that's you. And nothing is sadder to me. Nothing is sadder to me than sheep who do not know the voice of their master. We are supposed to know the voice of God. We are supposed to be God watchers in the place you look first is in here. And then comes the next word. The next word is be still. I love that. 
Here, you know, here comes the greatest army on earth. And God says, don't do something. Don't just do something. Be still. Quit trying to fix the unfixable. Quit trying to run from the inescapable. Quit thrashing around. Listen, if you pray at all, sooner or later, God will say to you, be still. Like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? They went up, they saw Jesus glorified. Peter, James, and John are up there. And Peter goes, hey, I got a great idea. Let's build three temples up here. John can get the contractor. James can do the fundraising. I'll be in charge of the project. And remember what the father said? He said, shut up and listen to my son. A lot of us need to hear that advice. You see, God can hold all we say, feel, bring to him. God always listens listens with compassion. But at some point, we must get to the heart of prayer. We must be silent and listen. We must shut down the inner noises. We must release our agendas and listen to his son. Be still and know that I am God. By the way, in Psalm 46... It's in reference to what we just read in Exodus 14. Be still and know that I am God. You will never know God if you cannot be still, not in any depth. And the reason Israel could be still and not be dominated by fear is because of the words God said. I love them. I will fight for you. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. And after that, it says, the pillar of cloud moved behind Israel and between Israel and the army of Egypt. The angel of the Lord came between them. The angel of the Lord literally had Israel's back. He stood between them and destruction. It became impossible for the Egyptians in this supernatural darkness to wage war or launch an attack on Israel. And then, when all this is going on, the same night it says, Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and the east wind drove back the sea and stacked up the water and turned the seabed into dry land so it could be walked upon. It wasn't like, by the way, it wasn't like, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's where they, you know, he just waves his staff and everything just goes like that. It took hours of a strong wind, and then... When things had dried out and it was maneuverable, Moses said, into the ocean, march. You won't hear that many times in history. Into the ocean, march. Isn't it amazing what God can do without our help? You know the story. The army of Pharaoh followed them into the parted sea. When Israel's on the other side, Moses stretched forth his hand and the sea collapsed on Pharaoh's army, destroying it. And it says not one Egyptian soldier survived, not one Hebrew died. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Let me ask you a question today. When was the last time you let God fight for you? When was the last time you quit struggling over that thing you've struggled with for years and let him fight the forces of evil on your behalf? When was the last time you gave enemies that were not flesh and blood over to him when was the last time you surrendered that lousy boss 
to him instead of grumbling and being bitter and griping about him all the time? When was the last time you just said, I'm going to keep silent and give him to God? When was the last time you gave that drug-addicted child of yours who you tried everything in the world to get them cleaned up and they still won't be cleaned up? When did you give them to God and started to sleep at night? When did you give that broken heart to him and say, look, I will let you do whatever you have to do to heal this instead of wallowing in self-pity for years? When did you give that marriage that was broken beyond repair to him? Or just let God run the world instead of you, instead of panicking about the next election? If you can't win the fight you're in, have you stepped back and asked him to fight for you? When have you, when you, you know, when was the last time you backed off striving, prayed, listened, let him take care of the problem, only do what you felt him nudging you to do, and then saw what happened? When was the last time you really gave a problem to God and let him fight? God saved Israel that day. And Israel, it says, feared the Lord and put their trust in him. Israel had nowhere to turn but to God at the Red Sea. Sometimes only, only the supernatural will do. We believe in miracles, don't we? I mean, I got up this morning to a couple of miracles. The Cubs are in the World Series. And Penn State beat Ohio State last night. I mean, and that was a miracle. A blocked kick for the winning score. And then Ohio State is driving to take the lead again. And God blinds the officials for Penn State. I know it was a miracle. I know it was a miracle because when I, I raced a flying pig to church this morning, I know it was a miracle. Because, you know, they say when some things happen, you know what will freeze over and pigs will fly. It was at the moment of greatest peril when only God's hand could do what needed to be done. Only when he could part the waters that Israel fully believed, truly believed in their God. It was at the Red Sea that God's power became more real to Israel than Egypt's power. It was at the Red Sea that real trust was born. In the book Faith and Doubt, the author talks about Henry Nouwen. You know Henry Nouwen, who wrote, has written so many books. Of course, he's gone on to be with the Lord. And he, my favorite book was The Wounded Healer. In the final year of his life, he took a sabbatical from working and writing. He longed for God, and yet this great, great man of God, the last year of his life, found it hard to pray. He found himself drawn, and oddly enough, you know where he spent most of the last year of his life? He spent most of the last year of his life at a circus. The Dutch priest who taught at Harvard and Yale and gave lectures at the highest level and wrote multiple books decided to, to spend, even though he didn't know it, the last year of his life at the greatest show on earth. And his favorite act was the trapeze act. The flying Rodleys. He watched them perform and he got to know them. Trapeze artists usually use safety net these days, but even falling into the one of these incorrectly is sometimes fatal. There were five members in the act. Three flyers, two catchers. The flyer, you know, climbs the steps, mounts the platform, grasps the trapeze. He leaps off the platform, swinging through the air. He uses his body for momentum, swinging with increasing speed. And then at the other side, there's the catcher. 
The catcher hangs upside down from his knees from another trapeze with his hands free to reach out. The moment of truth comes when the flyer lets go. He sails into the air with no support, no connection to the earth. He does a somersault or two. Picture him in the middle of a somersault and freeze the frame. There is absolutely nothing at that moment to keep the flyer from plunging to its death. What do you think he feels like? Do you think he feels fully alive, every cell in his body screaming out? Think he's feeling any fear right then? In the next moment, the catcher swings into our view. He has been timing his arcs perfectly. He arrives just as the flyer loses momentum and is beginning to descend. His hands clasp the arms of the flyer. The flyer cannot see him. To him, doing these somersaults, everything is a blur. But the flyer feels himself snatched out of the air. The catcher takes the flyer home, and the flyer is very, very glad. Now and spent some time getting to know the flyers. Flyers are small, weighing 150 pounds or less. Because if you're a catcher, you do not want a flyer with a sweet tooth. He learned about the equipment they used. They had socks filled with magnesium dry powder for their hands, especially for Joe, because Joe was one of the catchers. They told Henry, Joe sweats a lot. If you're a flyer, you don't want a catcher with sweaty hands. And here's where the trusting comes in. Letting go is always an act of trust. Rodley, as the leader of the group was called, told Nowen, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public may think I'm the star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He is there for me with split-second precision and grabs me out of the air as I come to him in the jump. Nowen asked him, how does that work? He said, here's the secret of the flyer. The secret of the flyer is that we do nothing. The, we just come and hang in midair with our arms out, and that's all we're supposed to do. The catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I have to simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait. Henry asked him, you do nothing? That's exactly what a flyer is supposed to do, is nothing. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch, he said. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there waiting for him. We all have to let go in life. We're flying whether we like it or not. The question is, who have you chosen as your catcher? Because that's what we get to choose. We don't get to choose whether we're on the trapeze. We don't get to choose whether we have to go out. We get to choose who and what we have faith in. Unfortunately, a lot of us never get beyond our thoughts about God. We learn about Him, think about Him, have questions about Him, study Him. But we never let go of the trapeze. We never fly. We never let ourselves be caught by the catcher. We never know that sensation. We talk, but we don't listen. We learn, but we don't trust. We memorize Scripture, but we don't let go of our control of our lives and soar. There comes a point where you have to let go and trust the catcher in order for Christianity to mean anything to you. Because, you see, it is there in midair, where, as Martin Luther wrote, we join the joyous wager on the unseen, unknown, untested goodness of God. 
It is there in midair when we step into the Red Sea and watch it part. It is there that our faith grows far more than reading a great book about God or getting a seminary degree or hearing a great sermon about trust. You grow by trusting step after step after step by putting your feet on ocean floor as God holds the waters back. When was the last time you really needed God? Really needed Him. When was the last time you let God catch you? When were you still enough Listening enough, trusting enough to leave Egypt and step into the Red Sea. And even more important, who is your catcher? We all live by faith. I want you to understand this. Every person on this planet lives by faith. It's just what or who do you have faith in? We all live by faith in something or someone. Even atheists live by faith. In fact, atheists live by a lot of faith. Faith in their intellect. Faith in some version of science. Faith in their own skepticism. It takes, I think it takes a lot more faith to be a, an atheist or an agnostic than a Christian. Every person, though, must decide what you are betting or who you are betting your life on. Because at some point, we all have to let go, if nowhere else, at the casket and hope somebody catches us. Really, honestly, honest to God, honest to yourself, what are you betting your life on, really? Who or what is really your God? Because the real God will take you, by the way, to the Red Sea, and he'll do it over and over throughout your life. You never stop going to the Red Sea. You never stop flying and need a catcher. And the good news is God will meet you there. He will part the waters. He will catch you. But some of us have never really gotten on the trapeze and flown. That's the call to all of us. I say it again, when was the last time you listened to God and stepped into the ocean? When was the last time you really said, I'm giving this to him? When was the last time you really followed him to the Red Sea and then across the Red Sea? When was the last time your faith was more than a head trip? When was the last time? I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors also to come forward. And uh, Randy going to lead us in a song, and Marilyn's going to play, and I'd like you to stand. And you can come up front for prayer for anything this morning. But if you do not come up front, I want you to consider the questions you heard at the end of this message. And I want you to decide where is your Red Sea? Where is your pie Hiroshima or what? Where, where is it? And I want you to decide whether you're going to fly or walk. At a testimony meeting that D.L. Moody attended, 